Now, it's time for Modern Money Donuts with Stephen Hale and Gabrielle Bond. Hello, wherever you are, and welcome to Modern Money Donuts. This is a podcast series about modern monetary theory and ecological economics. My name is Gabrielle Bond. Uh, I'm the CEO of Modern Money Lab and organiser for the Sustainable Prosperity Action Group here in Adelaide, South Australia. And my name's Stephen Hale, and I'm an economist at Modern Money Lab and adjunct associate professor at Torrens University. So today we'll be talking to Professor Fidel Kaboot from Denison University in Ohio, and he's president of the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity, which is where we uh, took our name. Um, we're talking to Fidel about the big bogeyman of 2021 and 2022, which is, of course, inflation. Yes, we'll be asking Fadel why the inflation rate spiked recently in the US and why so much of what we hear about the causes of inflation and the best way to manage inflation risk is misleading. Um, so how does that tie in with sustainability and what we are talking about last time? The inflation scare in the US is being used at the moment as a barrier to the Green New Deal and to the Biden Build Back Better package and the problem of building what we last time called a distributive and regenerative economy. I could quote from Fidel actually, from here from a recent interview that he did. He, he said, uh, if we lose this debate right now, for the next several decades, they're going to use this pandemic and fuel the narrative that what caused the inflation of the pandemic was the spending on poor children. And they're gonna be doing that whenever we address issues related to inequality, and whenever we address issues relating to building a sustainable economy and addressing climate change. So we need everyone to understand and get over the bogeyman, to use your word for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I think uh, you had a chart that we were going to have a quick look at before we get started. Uh, yeah, if that can come up on the screen. Just a, it's, it's not a particularly, um, it's not a chart I took a lot of time over. Um, we have inflation data here uh, for the US and for Australia and uh, Japan. And what you notice, just taking a quick look at this chart, which is based on the annual rate of increase of the consumer price index in the three countries, is that the US had a spike, because everyone knows, in the official inflation rate up to 6.8% in November last year. We've had something of an increase in our inflation rate in Australia, but so far, actually, it's not gone above our central bank's target band of 2 to 3%. So we've not had the same surge in inflation in Australia as in, in the US. And in Japan, they, they haven't had uh, a surge in inflation at all. Hmm. Now, this is suggestive that the cause of the surge in inflation in the US can't simply be put down to monetary policy, and to uh, fiscal stimulus or, or, or government spending, because all three of these countries had big support packages during the pandemic. And all three of these countries had zero interest rates, or in the case of Japan, for a long while, have had negative yeah. interest rates. Yeah, amazing. So I think it's interesting that the inflation spike has been centered, particularly in the US, Europe too, to a lesser extent. And we might want to think about why that's the case. But let's ask the expert. Absolutely. Um, so we have Fidel waiting uh, to come on the screen with us. Fidel, a really very warm welcome and thank you so much for coming on our show. 
Thank you, Gabby, and, and thank you, uh, Steve, for, for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. Um, so the standard prescription for inflation, we hear, is for central banks to raise interest rates and federal governments to cut back on their spending. Can you tell us what's wrong with that approach? Well, what's wrong is that both of those strategies, raising interest rates and cutting government spending, scaling back the fiscal policy intervention, will probably do exactly the opposite of what we want. Uh, and, and here's why. Because when, when fiscal authorities abdicate their responsibility and kind of exit the economy and hand the keys of the economy to the central bank, they're assuming that the central bank has the right tools to target the sources of inflation and as a result, tame inflation. And we know that the central bank, the main policy tool they're going to use is simply raise interest rates. And what I've been arguing, what many MMT economists have been arguing over the last uh, several years and, and decades now, is that typically the main sources of inflation are way outside the jurisdiction of the central bank. Yeah. Uh, that is to say, the main uh, areas where we see inflation pressure points building up have to do with two key areas. One is the shortage of productive capacity, supply chain disruptions, and this is even pre-COVID. And yeah, uh, yeah. so that's that kind of inflation is not going to go away by spending less and it's not going to go away by raising interest rate. It only goes away if we actually build more productive capacity, which can be done with an industrial policy, with strategic fiscal policy intervention to uh, invest in education, training, infrastructure, technical skills that will help countries boost their productive capacity in strategic areas. And this is true at the national level and at, at the global level. And then the second area where we see inflation pressure building up pre-COVID even, and in some cases even more so during COVID in the last few months, is what I call abusive market power, price setters in key industries who can raise prices simply because they can. And when they saw the, the panic around the pandemic disruption and shortages, they abused their power even more, especially in, in the US, to raise prices. And again, that kind of inflation is not going to go away by a raising interest rate. It can only go away by taxing and regulating that abusive market power out of existence, by democratizing those markets and, and making those markets more competitive. And that's precisely what fiscal authorities are not going to do because they told us so. Number yeah. one, they're not gonna spend more on strategic mm. areas to unclog the supply chains and build up productive capacity, invest in the kinds of skills we need to staff those industries. And number two, we know that they're not gonna tax and regulate abusive market power because they're brought to you by, sponsored by super PACs, by mm. those same, price setters in key industries um, that, that we're talking about. So on the fiscal side, we're doing exactly the wrong thing. On the monetary policy side, we're raising interest rates as a form of collective punishment that has nothing to do with the sources of inflation other than taming demand, raising, raising the cost of doing business across the economy and effectively throwing people under the bus. Yeah. And, and that's the, the sad part of this, uh, this reality. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that small increases in interest rates are not going to achieve anything, and might even add to inflation rather than rather than uh, rather than exactly. subtract from. You can certainly kill off inflation, particularly when asset prices are so high 
if you push interest rates high enough, but only by um, creating a financial crisis and a, a prolonged slump. Um, yeah, and you, I mean, as, as far as central banks taming particular sources of inflation related to financial assets, they can do that partly by raising interest rates, but even more effectively by regulating actual financial markets and going after speculators uh, and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. But the, the general kind of inflation that we're seeing today that's clearly related to pre-existing inflation pressure points and key areas of the economy. I'll speak here specifically about the U.S. We've known for a long time that the sources of inflation are real estate, uh, energy and transportation, healthcare, uh, education. There's nothing that the Fed is going to do by raising interest rates that will affect those, those sectors. And number two, abuse of market power. There's nothing that the Fed can do to address the health insurance industry power in the U.S., the telecom power in the U.S., the, and the oil and gas power in the U.S. is completely disconnected from their jurisdiction. Why do you think that this is so persistent, the view that um, uh, the, uh, achieving uh, low stable inflation is the job of the central bank and the only way to do this is to, is to manage interest rates? Because after all, in country after country for most of the last decade, Inflation has been below the central bank's target or target range for a long period of time. And interest rates have been cut and cut and cut again. They, they haven't managed to create inflation by cutting interest rates. So why do they think they can manage inflation simply by pushing interest rates back up? Well, for, for a number of reasons. Uh, I think this dates back to, you know, decades worth of um, economic theory and policy that has built this narrative. And, and solidified the idea that inflation is uh, is going to increase every time you have large government spending and deficits or strong consumer uh, purchasing power related to strong labor unions and, and generous mm -hmm. social policies and welfare policies. That was the case in the U.S. obviously in the in the golden age post post war era in the 50s and 60s and was completely destroyed and dismantled uh, in the 1970s and 80s with the rise of uh, inflation in the 70s and the Reagan and Thatcher sort of free market era that uh, that emerged, uh, reemerged during that time. And it's, mm -hmm. and it's, a, it's a moment where uh, politics and economics collided to hijack uh, a public narrative and then reinforce it within the economic discipline. And it's, and it's the following narrative. And I think we're about to the quote that you uh, cited earlier, uh, Stephen, in, uh, in the beginning of the show is really my biggest concern today, which is we're about to relive another hijacking of, inf of an inflation episode to reinforce those conservative public policies for, for several decades. So what happened in the 70s? We had a conflict in the Middle East. Uh, oil prices uh, went through the roof because of that conflict had nothing to do with consumers in the U.S. or uh, labor unions or any change in public policy in the U.S. But that was used as an excuse. As soon as oil prices went through the roof, inflation rippled through the U.S. and Western uh, Europe and the rest of the world, obviously, because it's a basic input. It's a cost of production throughout uh, the system, essentially. And the narrative that was hijacked, they say, aha, we told you all the big deficit spending and welfare spending is going to cause inflation eventually. So what did we do instead of tackling the source of inflation, which is a geopolitical conflict in the Middle East? What did we do? We raised interest rates and we cut public spending. 
yeah. and the U.S., effectively throwing people under the bus, raising the cost of doing business. And that kept fueling inflation, actually, not yeah. reducing inflation. Eventually, what reduced inflation in the, in the first instance was Jimmy Carter deregulating the natural gas industry in the U.S., which started the, the fracking frenzy. Uh, and natural gas was obviously a substitute for imported energy. And that started to tame a little bit the inflation pressures uh, in the U.S. economy because it reduced oil imports. And number two, uh, eventually what killed the source of inflation was finding a peaceful resolution to the conflict in the Middle East by signing peace accords. And that mm -hmm. eventually brought down oil prices and killed inflation. But the narrative that was built during that time period was, number one, the sources of inflation were big government, too much spending, strong labor unions and all of that. Number two, how we killed inflation was by getting politicians and fiscal authorities out of the picture, reducing public spending and handing the keys of the economy to the professionals, the experts at the central bank who know how to target inflation. They're not motivated by political agendas. So what do they do? They raise interest rate, which is what Volcker did. And that was the narrative, the confirmation that independent central banks, not politicians, not Congress and parliaments and MPs, they know how to deal with inflation. Politicians, fiscal authorities, they only cause inflation with their generous spending, you know, hoping for more votes from their constituents. So that's the narrative that we lived with for decades, not just in the U.S. and the Western world, but across the, the world. Right. Independent yeah. central banks know how to do it. And professional economists in textbook after textbook, in conference presentation after conference presentation, reaffirmed that model, not in the cultural sense, in the media sense of the term, but in the theoretical, empirical, conceptual sense of the term, brainwashing generations of young students uh, into <laughs> understanding that, you know, there is this trade off between unemployment and inflation. You can't have it both ways. No matter how uh, progressive you want your, your social policies, eventually you're constrained by too much of deficit spending and, and all that. And today, we went through a, a hopeful moment in the beginning of the pandemic, hopeful mm -hmm. in the narrow sense of the term. That is to say, we saw that governments around the world yeah. can actually yeah. intervene on a massive scale during a crisis with nobody asking questions, where is the money coming from? Who's gonna pay for it? Who are we gonna tax? Massive fiscal stimulus intervention to address the actual problems in the economy during the, the pandemic. Uh, and that opened everybody's eyes. Well, if the government can do this, maybe the government can pay for healthcare. Maybe the government can pay for childcare. Maybe the government can you know, mandate higher minimum wages. And that's kind mm -hmm. of the, the, the discourse in the U.S. right now is what are the limits of how much we can spend since mm -hmm. we can spend this much? And immediately we saw the counterattacks from the conservatives in the political spectrum and from the gatekeepers in the economics profession saying, well, we could do a little bit during the crisis, but not mm -hmm. make this a permanent situation yeah. where the government mandates these higher minimum wages and and, and supports the poor and, and, and addresses childhood poverty and, and things like that. There's, there's a limit to it. And now what is the limit? Too much inflation. And of course, inflation kicked in. And, the, and now they're saying, aha, we told you, we, we can't go beyond this. Now we need to scale back because inflation is going to you know, 
destroy the system. Uh, and so if we don't push back against this narrative and actually introduce the public, the media, the uh, policymakers and, uh, and, and the masses to understanding the basics of where inflation sources are, so we don't get fooled into this you know, narrative of the 1970s again, I'm afraid mm -hmm. we're going to see the same dominant narrative dominate for another several decades. Right, because yeah. this is our that's, moment. That's, that's kind of our don't look up moment, isn't it, really? Yeah. yeah. That's... Go ahead, Sorry, Stephen. I, I was just going to uh, uh, say, Fadel, thanks very much for that. That, that was a terrific uh, analysis. Uh, in Australia, um, we had, uh, when the pand pandemic was introduced, we had uh, an increase in our level of uh, unemployment benefit. Right. which yeah. had been in real terms not increased since the early 1990s and is a dreadful poverty level. Temporarily, it was raised above the poverty level. So hundreds of thousands of people were, were temporarily lifted out of poverty in Australia. They could afford to, um, literally, they could afford to eat and pay the rent for the first time yeah. in yeah. years. People, people would go to the dentist, people would, um, you know, get their car or their appliances fixed. It was actually really amazing to see the resourcefulness with which people use that opportunity. And then to have it all ripped out again was yeah. just devastating. And free childcare too. We had a, 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 for a short while, we had a negative inflation rate. And the thing which pushed it below zero was the introduction of free childcare, the temporary mm -hmm. introduction of free childcare, which again has been reversed. The other thing that um, worries me in particular about what you were just discussing, um, and I, I think the Conservatives also are, are, are looking back to the 1970s. Yeah. Um, they, they, in their view, what Paul Volcker did was exactly right and it worked and they think it should happen again. They can see parallels as well. But I remember the early 1980s as the period of the global debt crisis and the North trashing the global South sure. and the introduction of it led to the Washington consensus, the global neoliberalism. And I'm scared that the North is going to trash the global South again. Oh, it, it, it's already happening. Yeah. Mm. And many parts of the world and the global South, the debt crisis started because of the pandemic to begin with, not because of interest rates going up. Yeah. And it's going to be even more amplified with higher interest rates uh, on top of a pandemic that's not under control yet. Um, I'm afraid this is going to be kind of the, the perfect storm for, for many countries in the global South experiencing this while simultaneously countries in the global north recognizing that they went a bit too far with their globalization efforts and, and dis dislocating their supply chains, especially for strategic uh, inputs like PPE and microchips and things like that, and relocating uh, at least a little bit of the industrial activity that's been um, uh, placed in the global south, or at least slowing down the rate at which uh, a lot of these industries have been uh, moved to the global south. So that will be kind of double the damage for developing countries, uh, a public health crisis, uh, a debt crisis that started because of the shutdown in many developing countries, 
and now higher interest rates uh, globally and um, and, uh, and many countries have been downgraded already uh, in the global south and then um, a, a cutoff of the flow of FDI and, mm-hmm. and sort of uh, sources of export uh, for, for developing countries. So it, it just can't be, uh, you know, any, any worse than, than this. So we'll, we'll see what happens in the next few years. So, sorry, Fidel, could you, could you tell us what FDI is? Uh, FDI is foreign direct investment, which is ah, the mechanism okay. by which a lot of industrialized countries relocate uh, sort of the, the more obsolete uh, industries, the assembly lines to the global south in search of uh, lower cost labor, fewer regulations, lower taxes, in many cases incentives uh, to, uh, to relocate. Yeah. Um, what do you, sorry, Gabby, go ahead. <laughs> um, I just, I, I mean, I, I, being Australian, I, I sort of, I see US politics playing out a little bit at a distance and I, I can't, obviously it's too big for me to understand the whole what's whole of what's going on but um i just wanted to ask about a particular senator joe manchin uh and going back to what you talked about about uh the inflation scare and um the way the the build back better proposal has been blocked um could you tell us a bit about what's going on there Yes, yeah, Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia, who's um, uh, who's a Democrat. Uh, he's one yeah. of the fifty uh, uh, Democratic Party senators, which means all fifty votes are needed for any policy to uh, to move forward. Um, so that makes him the king of the Senate in this regard, yeah. not just the senator. Um, uh, and and he was very clear uh, about. Uh, this uh, fiscal spending on infrastructure, on health, on social services, it says, number one, I remember the inflation of the 1970s. Uh, number two, inflation is happening because we already spent too much. And if we add more to the national debt and the deficit, it's going to fuel even more spending. And number three, he used the phrase, we need a strategic pause, right? A strategic mm-hmm. pause in spending until we see what happens, a strategic pause in what I think should be regulation, more aggressive regulation of, mm-hmm. of uh, market power, mm-hmm. uh, a strategic yeah. pause in what many of us have called for, which is a structural transformation of the economy towards more renewable energy uh, and, and so on. So yeah. uh, he's been very clear he's not going to vote for any of these things. And because of his reasoning, it, uh, I think we're going to see more inflation, not less inflation. Uh, in a way that I described earlier. So do you uh, think this is a, a a genuine misconception in his on his part? Like he actually doesn't understand or is this something more sort of uh, manipulative? Um, I, I, I don't know. I wish I can get in his head and get a, a real answer. But looking from the outside and knowing what we know about his... Um, you know, track record in the Senate on particular issues. We know that uh, he's fiscally conservative. We know that he's done whatever he could to protect the interest of the coal industry. We yeah. know that his own family is well invested <laughs> in, yeah. in the industry. Uh, and we know that uh, he's influenced by conservative thinkers in the economics profession who convinced him, like they convinced many others, that mm-hmm. the 1970s inflation was 
caused by too much spending, by the welfare state, by uh, yeah. social programs that are just too expensive, putting too much money in the system, sending people on a shopping spree. So it's a demand boost fueled by this government spending that, uh, that caused the, the crisis. And, and even President Biden, who's not your most progressive you know, person in the world, the other day made it very clear that there's this debate that he's dealing with right now in the, in the political uh, landscape between mm -hmm. people who believe that this is a problem, inflation is a problem of too much demand. And he said a debate between people who think that we can boost the supply to produce more to meet this additional demand. So that brings him closer to the MMT camp, which is, yes, boost productive capacity, but that's not enough. Boost productive yeah. capacity and go after the oligopolies, the, the price setters. Yeah. And that yeah. becomes a little bit uh, tricky. And I, I haven't uh, seen enough action to indicate that this is where the United States government is, is going in a, in a very serious way, other than you know, few rhetorical statements here and there about, you know, people taking advantage of the crisis to raise prices and things like that. Yeah, I think a, a very similar thing is is playing out in Australia. We have a federal election coming up in, um, well, a couple of months, really. Uh, it's legislated that it has to be held by the end of May, the 21st of May. And, you know, both of our... Um, our major or our larger parties uh, are talking about budget repair and who is the most better economic managers. And yeah, I guess we, we're in a way a smaller microcosm of what's happening in the US. Um, with um, the coal, coal mining and that, that sort of uh, side of the story, I think even the, I read something um, recently which said even the coal miners are starting to <laughs> uh, feel um, the need, like in their communities, they're suffering as well, and they need they need the 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 support that um, the kind of things that build back build back better would bring. Uh, and so maybe you know the bombarding yeah. of the message from both sides. And I saw I used to watch um, uh, the follow the sunrise movement on Twitter, and I saw all the young people kind of trying to get their message across. And yeah, maybe just. A couple of chinks in the armor. Well, here's the thing. I mean, the coal miners in, in the U.S., and I'm sure it's the case in, in other countries, have been losing jobs and, and losing uh, ground in terms of their labor force in the U.S., not because of the COVID crisis, not because of the Green New Deal, but because of automation yeah. uh, in, in the industry and because of, um, you know, countries transitioning to more renewable energy. So it's it's happening. It's going to happen sooner or later. And off the record, many leaders in the labor movement and, and the fossil fuel industry will honestly tell you, of course, we understand we need this transition for yeah. the planet, for our future, but yeah. not by throwing us under the bus. So they say, mm -hmm. if you guarantee a just transition, not just promise a just transition, if you fully underwrite a just transition, as in guaranteeing jobs for us at similar wages and benefits mm -hmm. with pensions commensurate with the levels we expect from the fossil fuel industry, then we're with you immediately today. Yeah. But if you promise us a better future and say, look, there are jobs in the solar industry that pay you 
you know, 60% of your current wages and, and benefits and potentially no pension. And more importantly, non-union jobs in the solar and wind uh, industry, mm -hmm. then of course, we're not going to go with you. If you promise us with empty words and then throw us under the bus, like the millions of people you threw under the bus with globalization and deindustrialization, then of yeah. course, we're not with you. We're going to stand with our employers, the oil and gas companies and the coal companies to defend our interest. Yeah. And that's why and in this kind of inter in, uh, transition, it's imperative for federal governments to actually underwrite and guarantee the transition for those workers. Otherwise, we're, we're not going anywhere. We're going to be in the, in the same situation yeah. until who knows what. And you can totally understand that point of view. Um, I guess when, when the people who do work in those industries, I mean, they have children and grandchildren and uh, it makes me wonder, you know, how that how how that weighs upon people as well. Of course, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I uh, and Gabby will remember we had the coal miners uh, union leader at our conference two years ago, and he said yep. almost precisely what Fadel just said yep. uh, a moment ago. And as far as fossil fuels are concerned, generally, one of the things that's spiking the inflation rate at the moment, again is rising gasoline prices in the US. And if you yeah. want to deal with that sort of sensitivity oh. to inflation, then you need to move away from using gasoline in the future and, uh, and move more rapidly towards uh, 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 electrifying the power system and uh, um, uh, investments in yeah. renewable energy. And in other words, as Fado was saying, and this goes, I think, both for short run supply constraints and for the long run fragility to we need to be making those strategic investments yeah. to use the word strategic we don't need to be cancelling them yeah and, and the case of gasoline prices going up in the u.s it's actually a very interesting phenomenon because it has to do with a couple of things one is the economy is reopening and there's more demand two is that the the u.s uh, gulf coast which is home to a large segment of the oil industry and the refining um, uh, industry was hit by a major hurricane early in, in the season that disrupted production and brought mm -hmm. uh, the uh, the reserves of, uh, of uh, oil and gasoline in the in the industry to record low levels. And and then number three, the U.S. doesn't produce gasoline just for the U.S. economy. Uh, our neighbors south of the border, the Mexican economy imports 50% of its gasoline from the U.S. Now, remember, yeah. Mexico is an oil exporter, and I always talk mm -hmm. about big oil exporters in the global south are actually mm -hmm. net energy importers because they don't yeah. have the refining capacity. So climate change, structural weaknesses in the global south, um, and, and heavy dependence on uh, fossil fuels in, in the U.S. and in the global south, Again, all of these problems, what we've been saying in the MMT community for years now, invest in renewables because it gives you more uh, resilience uh, in the global south and the global north. Uh, invest in uh, renewables because it reduces the debt trap for developing countries and gives them more resilience to external shocks to their exchange rate. Invest in renewables to save the planet and to minimize the impact of these uh, storms and hurricanes and forest fires that we know are going to accelerate. We know not us and the MMT community, the climate scientists. 
And, and the evidence in the last decade, at least, has finally confirmed to us that these events will become more intense and more damaging to uh, climates and environments and, and economies around the world. So that's your little explanation for, for the recent increase in, in gasoline prices, mm. uh, in addition to other issues related to um, you know, the Middle East again, which has a significant influence on oil prices and geopolitics related to it. Yeah. Thank you very, thank you so much, uh, Fidel. We, we perhaps uh, better draw it to uh, a close there. Um, we'd but love just to before, you... go before we, we go, I think um, just thinking back to what you were saying about um, uh, generations of uh, uh, economists getting into the ears of Congress people and saying, oh, you know, um, uh, you know, we can't afford to invest in our communities. We've got to look at budget repair. I think we should just mention, Stephen, perhaps you'd like to say about what our project is for the next little while that you and I are working on together. I think that's important to add. Um, the, we're working on a variety of projects. Uh, which, one you, which one are you I'm talking, talking about? I'm talking about the courses that we want to run. Okay. Oh, well, yeah, we are, as, uh, as uh, Fadel already knows, and I think we've mentioned before, we are working on setting up uh, a series of postgraduate qualifications, hopefully, which is going to train a whole production line of MMT and ecologically trained economists in the years to come, who we hope will end up, and we've got faith that some of them will end up, in our big financial institutions and more importantly in our big policy institutions uh, as well yeah that's that's very important we're doing that with the help of phil lawn actually perhaps uh, it would be good to mention now that next week we're going to get to talk to maren poitras who is playing an important role in uh, promoting modern monetary theory in general uh, about her movie that she's been making finding the money that's going to be great. We'll see an excerpt from the movie. Then in two weeks' time, we'll talk sustainability and MMT with our great friend Phil Lorne, who's working yeah. on that project and on a whole series of other projects uh, with us uh, at the moment. Um, we'd love also to have Fadel back on in the very near future because uh, this has been quite a short interview, both to dispel the myth that there's a contradiction between an MMT perspective on macroeconomics and our need to live within our planetary boundaries in the future. Absolutely. And it will be a pleasure. That's us in a nutshell, in a donut, in fact. <laughs> and, and talk about, as, as he often uh, uh, does in a variety of places, monetary sovereignty and the global south too. So that's actually two slots. So we'd like Fadel to come back on, if you don't mind, more than once in the future, because it, it's great to talk to Fadel, who is uh, not only a great friend, but somebody I very much look up to uh, as a mentor and one of the leading MMT economists at what is in so many ways a vital inflection point for mm. policy debates, the future, not just of the US economy, but the whole global economy and for that matter, our planet. So thanks very much, Fadel. Thank you, it's been and a pleasure. Sorry to interrupt. If you want to reach Stephen or I, you can email at us at info at modernmoneylab.org.au or find us on and, Twitter. 
And at the top of the hour, there's another uh, program on KRTD Media, which is uh, Joe Firestone's show, which is always worth watching and you should never miss. Absolutely. So thank you very much. And uh, Thanks, I'll Bill. say goodbye. See you next time.